It was a cold November night. I was in the drawing room, sipping a can of super lager by the fire. The logs crackled and the flames licked high, but there was a chill in the air. Wrapping the woolen blanket tight around myself, I sipped at the brandy and wondered where that cursed wind was coming from. I had just finished watching Robocop 3, the one where Peter Weller gets replaced by Robert John Burke, and was in the middle of frowning when I heard it. A tip-tapping somewhere outside. The hair on my neck stood up. Who would be calling at this hour? It was at least half nine, and I'm normally in bed by ten, having a, reading a book. Everyone knows this. I leave my curtains open. There it was again, a tip-tapping, like something knocking one of those old fifty-pence coins on some single glazing. Or was it? Yes. I turned to the window, where the beige net curtains were billowing in the wind. I must have foolishly left the window open, and there it was. A huge black thing. The raven stood on the sill, staring at me with those void-like eyes. Between its clawed talons was gripped an old 50p piece. I stared at it, wide-eyed in horror and confusion. How did it manage to get hold of a coin that had been out of circulation for so long? 1997 from memory, although I'd have to check. It stood still and blinking. The fire popped loudly, causing me to jump. I turned briefly towards the noise, and in that instant I heard a tap. It was on the inside of the window now, and it had closed it as well behind it, which was quite good as it was absolutely Baltic, and my heating bill was already ludicrous. I'd complained twice, the second time they hung up on me for swearing. The raven dropped the 50p to the floor, where it rolled towards me across the floorboards. I followed it with my eyes until it slowed and stopped as it hit the leg of the chair I was sitting on. A single dining room chair in the middle of a bare room beneath a single swinging bulb. I'd flog the furniture because I was absolutely brassic. I looked up from the coin and the raven was now perched next to me on the awful lamp I'd nicked from a skip down the road. It was an awful hooked shape with doilies hanging from the lampshade, but the bulb still worked so I saved a few quid there. The raven being lit from underneath by the glow of the lamp gave it an almost ethereal presence. It stared at me, calculating, judging, knowing. I swallowed hard. My throat was dry. What do you want of me, raven? The raven leaned in closer with its dead, unwavering gaze. Fuck! I was aghast, and yet it continued. Fuck! I, I don't understand. Am I supposed to... Fuck! We stood for a while in a heavy silence, the crackling fire the only sound in that deadened room. It, it sounds like you're saying fuck. Fuck! It really does sound like you're, you're just saying fuck. I, I, I don't know what you want me to do. The raven slowly turned its head, those beady eyes still locked to mine, and with a wing gestured across the room. I followed the direction in which the wing was pointing, and to my dismay, it led towards the case for Robocop 3, discarded near the television. Do you, do you want me to watch that again? Fuck! said the raven, softer this time. But it's not very good, I advised. It lacks the satirical edge of the first one, and the violent unpleasantness and Tom Noonan of the second, making it a more toothless and family-friendly trudge through what is effectively a shadow of its former self. 
Ah, said the raven. And with that, it flapped its wings once and flew straight through the glass of the window, out into the night, the rush of wind putting out the fire and leaving me ensconced in darkness. I never watched Robocop 3 again. That was The Raven, uh, our introductory sort of audio story. Hope you enjoyed it. It was a Halloween treat, wasn't it? It was. And also, spontaneous with no pre planning. Boom, done. One take. Mm. So, uh, off the top of the head. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, This is going to be a far briefer one because usually our podcasts go on for between three to four months, but today we're going to try and keep it under five hours. Uh, (laughs) I've, I've, I've only got five films, and two of them Rupert's already covered before. Uh, and yet, they're so good that you just keep. We could just cover them every week, pretty much. Yeah. Oh my God! This every week the same one. Okay. Yeah. So I watched Iron Two again. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Noticed a few more himself. details. <laughs> <laughs> um, this time I saw William Sadler's testicles. Uh, <laughs> the last four hundred times I, I thought he was just holding a, a coin purse near his crotch. So that was neat, <laughs> and that was nice. Um, yeah. So I have got Smoke and Mirrors, the story of Tom Savini. Parasite, Monstrum, and then I'm going to touch on The Perfect Getaway and Summer of 84. Okay. Well, I have only six myself. So I have The Witch in the Window, which I believe you've seen. Yes, I really like that. Yeah. The Guest, uh, Demons, May, The Mortuary Collection, and one non-horror, for our delight, uh, Borat, subsequent movie film. This is actually, you know, you've just remembered, I've actually seen the Mortuary Collection as well. That's one I forgot oh, to. Okay. Actually, my associate, Faye, forgot to. She deals with our letterbox listing, so I'll have to, <laughs> I'll have to punch her in the face. But whilst wearing a padded boxing glove later on. So, to make it comical. To make it, yeah. Or hit it with one of those, like, mask-esque, like, sort of boxing glove on a spring. Mm. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's just like, so, so she's, she's hurt, but she, she's like, oh, you sausage. Yeah. Um, hurt, so, but yeah, laughing but, through the blood. And I watched 30 minutes of the new Borat movie. I just put it on really late, and I just thought I am not in the mood for this. So uh, I, I didn't, I didn't get any further yes. with it. <clears throat> so I'll kick off with the two that you've already covered. Then I'll start off with Summer of '84 because um, I watched them on your suggestion, yeah. and I, I really liked Summer of '84. Mm. Um, I'm not, I'm not someone uh, who I don't really go for things. You know, when when things are related to the Goonies, oh, it's yes. it's not something that really appeals to me so i was sort of a bit weary thinking would this not really be my jam but i I really liked it and like you see the ending doesn't give a hoot (laughs) i I did like how it just said right this is the end then off we trot um yeah really and i swear to god i realized as well that the neighbor in it i spent the whole film thinking i'm sure i've seen you in something else but i realized that He's got a really, really similar um, face to the, well, he's now sadly dead, blues guitarist Jeff Healy. So I just remember looking at him, just thinking, I really should listen to more Jeff Healy. Uh, so, so that was good. But yeah, I was a really big fan of it. And Yeah. It, it was, he looks a bit like Sean Astin as well, to be honest. Oh, yes. Who's, of course, in the Goonies. Yeah. Yes, there's a, there's, a touch of, uh, there's a touch of Sean. A touch of Sean. Um, it was well, this spin-off from A Touch of Frost. Um, so... Um, yeah, it was. I, I really enjoyed that. Uh, and yes, I, ref- I I have thought about Summer of '84, uh, and I don't know whether I mentioned last time, but I think 
what's clever about it is that it does actually lull you into a full sense of security because of its 80s styling. It seems quite deliberate, actually, that, you know, there's something very warm and nostalgic about the kind of aesthetic and the whole setup of all these kids and stuff. So when the ending comes along, it's even more shocking because you're not expecting it to go for a style of film like this to go in that direction. I really liked as well that it's not... um... I think usually when there's a group of kids in a film, there's a a, a tendency to sort of say, "Oh, here's a group of like horny boys," um, and it's just it's just really face value kind of. Oh, that's what kids are like. But I really like, for example, in this where they're constantly doing the mum jokes, which was very much a thing of my teens. Oh yeah. And then and the, the, that really horny kid is is constantly making mum jokes, and it is funny, especially when it's like really tense situation. He's like, "Oh yeah, like your mum." It's like mm, a bit more serious now. Come on, <laughs> time is of the essence. <laughs> Um, but I also like that uh, the bigger kid when they're having to go with his mum and he's like quite offended. Then and then you see his home life, yes. and and it gives it that kind of three uh, D emotional. You're like, oh okay, yeah, that is. So so then when it goes back to the mum jokes, you kind of you're like, no, don't don't say that. That's not very nice. Yeah, um, yeah. So so you really really like that perfect getaway. Uh, I I watched it and I thought mm. I've seen this before, <laughs> and I and I, I remember because I've only ever seen about two films with Steve Zanin. Um, and he's weirdly buff, by the way. That well, later yes. on the film, when he just comes out and it's like you, you are ripped, and he's like really sort of squat and broad shoulders yeah. as well. Yeah. Um, so I fancied Timothy Oliphant. That's very clear to, um, to me. But when I was watching it, the twist in it, <laughs> I, re- I I remembered it. Right, I remember. I was like, oh, hang on, I kind of I remember this, and as it, and then. <laughs> so as it's leading up to this like this inevitable twist i'm thinking the private conversations that steve zan and Mila jovovich have do not do not match up with the script with like with the script it doesn't make any sense and also when the kind of reveal happens and then obviously there's a blue tinted flashback that flashback explaining this a basic plot point goes on for longer than my entire childhood i was it's I, and like I, it's within I, me <laughs> <laughs> it's like he literally like a character like pulls the trigger on a gun it flashes back and it's literally about 25 minutes of footage before that bullet finds its target yeah and and, and then the character who's fired the gun says that bullet is really taking ages to travel travel across um yeah it's astonishing and there's so much it's so much extra information in this so yeah. super and you look come on i know what's happening um yes. i'm cool do that instead of just sort of saying but boom here's the twist a couple of yeah. flashbacks off your trot it spends so much time going through the flashback that you have time to pick apart like no yes. none of this holds together <laughs> it's you can tell it's like a, a, a flimsy twist when you have to have that amount of exposition of re-exposition in order to clarify it and uh make sense of it yeah, because the, the the characters obviously involved in it. There's so many moments when they're having private conversations that don't match up to what. <laughs> yeah, what why they, would they be saying that? Why would they be saying these things? If yeah, it's preposterous. But it's so wonderfully preposterous that it's kind of like, oh, okay. Yeah. Um, you just kind of but, go along with it at that point. Yeah, whatever. But no, it is cool, and it's a very pretty film. It, it does. It you do. It's a very sort of pretty film to sit through. Um, yeah, so, um, and yeah, Chris Hemsworth rocking up in it as well. You're like, okay. It's, yeah, um, that was, so when was it? Is it? 2009, I think. Right, so it would have been just, well, yeah, I don't know when he, he did Thor in 
I want to say 2010. It might be later than that. Anyway, yeah, so I suppose he would have been just a bit part actor at that point. But yeah, it is weird seeing him in it because, of course, now you expect him to play more of a role. And then he's just, ah, he's gone. (laughs) He's in it for about three minutes. Yeah, I think if you're a fan of, like, um, again, it's very much my wheelhouse, like a kind of silly generic thriller. It is good, and and because it's it's a very pretty, brightly lit tropical thriller. So it's kind of nice in that respect as well. Yes, it's it's quite an unusual setting. But, I mean, it's not just suspension of disbelief. It's it's like putting disbelief into hermetically sealed stasis never to be let out because it's so ridiculous you didn't tell me that hulk mccallany was in it either which when he rocks up the helicopter at the end i thought i fancy you i fancy you and i fancied you in that tv show made by david fincher that yes ended without a definitive uh, end point good like all the best shows yes Oh, I really want to watch that as well. You're saying that it's I'm going to watch it and then be disappointed at the end. Yeah, much like oh, everything good. I watch, hung, bored to death. Every TV show that I ever watch just ends without a definitive ending. You're like, wicked, wicked! What a massive waste of my time. So I imagine <laughs> the ending, and in my ending, in my all my imagined endings have the same feel, where everyone just fancies me. And then, um, and then <laughs> look down a tunnel and they kiss Hulk McCallany. I'm not sure that would always be the best ending for every <laughs> show. To be honest, um, but the uh, yeah, well, speaking of unfinished business, I mean, of course, Timothy Oliphant starred in uh, Deadwood, which was famously unfinished uh, until like something like over ten years later, they released like a film to finish it off. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> Timothy Oliphant as well. Santa Clarita Diet, boom, cancelled. So no end to that. Good. <laughs> That's such um, a good show. Uh, it, he's he's a weird one because he's one of those actors who can be. If he gets the right role, he's really, really good. Santa, uh, Santa Clara Diet, obviously, he's brilliant in that. But if he gets the right role, he can be brilliant. If he gets the wrong role, he can be very, very bland. And uh, I'm looking at you, Die Hard. Die Hard. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's what it's what it's coming back down to. Yeah. Yeah. The only positive thing I can say about Die Hard 4.0 is it's not Die Hard 5. I, I couldn't watch Die Hard 5. I just thought, I remember going to the cinema with my parents uh, and it was the last time I went with my parents and my brother I was like a, to a family showing and they finished it and I remember them saying like because my mother is I think I said before she's very impressed by spectacle and loudness um, and so she was um, like for instance I remember the sound she made when we were in watching the Expendables in the cinema and um, oh my god if Terry Crews fires his minigun in slow motion she was sat next to me and she literally went ho 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 because it was just so loud it's like yep that's that's the 11 quid's worth um so <laughs> that was the money shot was the money shot i mean terry cruz is cool but i was watching died for and i watched it with like oh like a really like a cringeworthy depressing frown and when it finished they were like oh, that was kind of kind of cool not as good as the other ones and i thought oh that was a complete because he is not john mcclain he yeah. is not john mcclain in those films he is bruce willis so <laughs> I, I couldn't bring myself to watch the fifth one. There's no way I'll ever watch it. There's no need. There's no need. Even no. though isn't uh, that bloke in it that we both really like? I can't remember. It's not Timothy Oliphant. No, it's the the the, oh, the Australian actor. Or was he in 4.0 as his son and then they recast it or something? Oh, Jay Courtney. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, is he? Uh, I get, yeah, I think he's in the, the, the last one. I guess 
maybe the plan was to like hand over the reins. I don't know. Oh. It was never going to happen. Yeah, they must have sat him down and said, Jay, we're going to need you now to take over the reins from Bruce, uh, but you're going to have to be really bad at acting, I'm afraid. Really, really just really an interest in everything that's going on for the rest of your career, I'm afraid, Jay, if you're up for it. No, I don't want to do that. I guess uh, if they really wanted to, someone to take over from Bruce Willis, because as we know, Bruce Willis's casting in the original Die Hard was so against type, that's why it worked so well. Uh, because, of course, he'd been in like Moonlighting before that. He was a he's a comic romance type actor. He was a, a soft man. Being Are you put trying to say they should have replaced John McClane with Michael Jeter? <laughs> I think it's the only one. Uh, but yeah, like it doesn't make sense. He's if, if you're going to replace him as someone, it doesn't make sense to put a hard man in that role sort of thing. It just, yeah, I don't know. It, because that's what, of course, the Die films became, just generic hard man movies. Well, the thing is, I read, just you saying that, I was just thinking then, if they did a Die Hard reboot with a kind of, say, um, like, you know, a, 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 like I said, off kind of kilter actor in it, I'd be more interested in a reboot of that kind of sort of man completely out of his depth in a certain situation than I would in a six film. Yes. Well, I mean, they are, I think, I'm sure they've been discussing a prequel for a good long while. Might have been a TV series, I'm not sure. The idea being that it'd be like John McClane in New York sort of thing, which, yeah, I'm not sure. This doesn't sound particularly interesting. Because, well, it's a TV series, so I'll never watch it. And, and now the thing is about him is that he is just a regular beat cop, isn't he? Yeah. Uh, so just be a man detective? capably doing his job. Anyway, yeah, <laughs> so it'd just be a guy, a New York cop doing his job. And that was the whole thing about Die Hard is he's a regular cop. Who gets thrown into an extraordinary situation so you just have to have someone doing quite ordinary cop work wouldn't you mm. yeah because otherwise you get the you get you, you get the anyway. issue of you get the alien isolation issue which is where uh of course you've had ripley ellen ripley has obviously had these experiences with the alien um which have been bad but haven't been you know mass murder and she hasn't had to like creep around a ship for 25 hours in order to avoid it and then her daughter comes along and has a much much worse experience than she did like much more brutal and intense and loads more happens to her it's like yeah this is kind of diluting what i've experienced in the alien films now and yet, I'd rather play through the Aliens arcade game side-scrolling beaten up than Alien Isolation. It's bizarre. <clears throat> so then, um, w w should we discuss The Witch in the Window, seeing as that's another one that we've both seen? Yes, yes, of course. So yeah, this is on Shudder at the moment. I'm obviously working through Shudder. I am working its ass. Um, I'm back on Shudder as well now, by the way. Good. Um yeah, so this is, as you've described before, it's a slow burn, character driven horror about this guy who brings his 12 year old son to this remote farmhouse and they're, they're going to work on the place in order to flip it, um, basically sell it on. And this neighbour explains that a woman used to live here and they saw her sitting in the front window for th three weeks and then they realised she was actually dead. So. <laughs> Um, got her out of there. And now, as the house is kind of being rebuilt and reinvigorated, so is the woman who died there. And she's quite powerful, and she has this habit of like twisting people's sense of perception and 
shape-shifting and stuff. Um, so in, uh, something occurred to me when I was watching it that it's kind of like... Um, the dad looks like Billy Crystal? Is that what yes, you're going to Yes, absolutely. Well, that yeah. definitely, because I was going to mention that, because he's, his name's Alex Draper. And, of course, when I, I mentioned uh, the, an awful horror film called Yellow Brick Road a few weeks ago... Oh, yeah. And... And he and I remember it. He was the one shining light in that film. He yeah, was, you said he no, was the one good actor. Yes. I remember you specifically saying, yes. "Yeah." And I remember saying, "This guy who looks like Billy Crystal, I've never seen before." So he's really strong in this again, and he just needs to be in more things. There's no reason for him not to yeah. be. Um, yeah, I was going to say it. Like something occurred to me that that the, the witch in the window is almost like it, it's almost like a you know that house film from the '80s with William Cat. Of course. Um, where he's kind of like in this house on his own and then things kick off and it's like he just basically goes a bit nuts it's kind of a bit like that but not meant to be funny in any way so it's quite dead serious and i think i feel that the witch in the window is a film that is a horror film that overcomes a slightly hokey premise and pretty ordinary kind of scares thanks to the writing which is good is sensitive writing um especially between the father and the son and really good performances so it definitely elevates it and it's it's pretty brief as well it's only about 80 minutes yeah so yeah, yeah even if it does feel a bit familiar it doesn't have to say it's welcome but yeah by the end i i felt quite it felt like i had an emotional um impact not just a kind of like oh that was spooky that was disturbing it, it was it was quite it's got quite a nice ending i say nice ending kind of creepy but also but it has an emotional resonance to it that's the point yeah so and i think okay. going back to the scares as well i mean mm-hmm. like when they first uh, encounter encounter the woman it's all it's it's a very kind of lingery film like a lot of the shots linger in, and it doesn't there's no like hard cuts or massive jump scares i think no. I think that that they couldn't really do that because because it is a sensitive story, well told and, and well acted by Billy Crystal, Alex Draper. We got to give him his point. He, he does. No, more people need to know about him. Alex Draper. That um, his hair is unmanageable. That I think if it did rely on like if it was like oh this is a horror film we need to have more jump scares it would it would offset the balance a bit. And yes. I, when I it, same as you, it got to about forty minutes in when I realised I wasn't really approaching it in my head as a horror film. I was watching it more as like a family drama. Yeah. Um, and it's much more. It feels much more low key. So yeah, I, I really like that film. I was a really big fan of it. Yes, it is sort of like um, in that same way, the Babadook, where the first time I watched the Babadook. I found it a disappointing horror film, but then when I watched it again, I, I approached it much more as a drama about uh, a mother and a son. And when you sort of start looking at it in a different way, then it you appreciate the film a lot more, I think. So rather than just expecting, just waiting for the scares, it's like, okay, well, it, there's a human drama here, which is actually quite affecting. Yeah, I think that's quite telling. The fact that you and I both had the same experience with Babadook as well, because I watched it and I, uh, I, it was probably you at the time that said it's not horror; it's more of a kind of drama about grief. And going into that, it, you you can just relax and enjoy. But I know a few people who've watched it and just said, "Oh, it's just like it's just a not very scary horror." But it, it's mm. that expectation. I, and I think when when did the Babadook come out? Like two thousand twelve or thirteen or something? Something like that, yeah. Some 
But I think that just goes to show what kind of horror we were so used to coming out that was new at the time. Yeah, yeah. You just waiting for jump scares and stuff, not because you enjoy them, but just because you think, oh, that's just what horror is at the moment. So, yeah, yeah I you, suppose you recalibrate. Like, yeah, I think the Babadook was <laughs> one of the first in the kind of new wave of more intelligent character-driven horror that took over from really quite drab remakes in the tw- in the 2000s and uh, endless so, sequels yeah and so that came along and and then of course you have some obviously you got stuff by jordan peele you got it follows you got the witch you know, under, more, under the shadow or in the shadow what was that film what we do in the shadows it was no that, that was good don't get me wrong that's <laughs> a um, different kind of movie but um no it was uh oh i think it was like a it was oh. a, like an eastern film about a about a a woman and a daughter living in this, uh, trying to move out of a city that's under fire. I'm sure it's called Under the Shadow, Beneath the Shadow, or something like that. I haven't seen it. I'll have to check that out. Yeah, definitely. I yeah, thought definitely. you might be referring to Under the Skin, which was a very different horror film again. One with Scarlett Johansson. Whew, that's full on that. <laughs> no, I haven't seen that one, actually. That did not mess about. Well, it's just a bizarre premise with Scarlett Johansson playing an English woman driving around Glasgow, seducing seducing men, and a lot of it is sort of done in either documentary style or with real people, non-actors and stuff, and seduces men, brings them back to this house, and a really surreal kind of ritual takes place, and it becomes apparent that she's an alien kind of absorbing these, their bodies. It's utterly bizarre and... I'm hoping because it's filmed in Glasgow, the men she uh, seduces are Liam Cunningham, and um, who's that one of our favourites? <laughs> James Cosmo, <laughs> yeah, and Sean Connery. They um, honestly, they might as well be. They're not. <clears throat> yeah, they're not hunks. Put it that way. They're not sculpted men. No, they're okay. not. So, uh, what film are we discussing then? Sorry, we went off slightly. <laughs> the Witch in the Window. Yeah, and which is. Uh, and would you say that's a high recommendation from both of us? Because I, I don't. I think so. Yeah, it. I think so. And especially as it's one of those ones which seems to just slip completely under the radar. I, I never yeah. hear about it. So. It was one of my favorite films of the year. And when when I saw how few reviews it had, I, th- I was like, what? what? Come on, everyone. It um, may be because it's just sort of stuck on Shudder. I mean, I know Shudder's fairly popular, but I I get the feeling that it's almost like when it comes to streaming, it's like, oh, you know, you recommend something, it's like, oh, is it on Netflix or Prime? And it's like, okay, well, neither. But you can get Shudder through Prime, so yeah. do it. It would be quite cool one day to do a podcast that would be, um, suge- like, if you were going to get a one-week uh, trial on Prime for free, which films you should scream into? Yes, that could I be quite cool. Yeah. Um, next week, in fact. Um, so, yeah, no, I highly recommend it. And there was another one that you watched that. Oh, the the mortuary collection. Oh yeah, yes. So we <laughs> might as well hit that. Worry about it. I, so, uh, I keep scrolling through notes. I will say, by the way, the whole, the entire reason I watched this film was because I am very pro Clancy Brown. Anything <laughs> I will I look at that. Well, it's a horror anthology with Clancy Brown. How can you not watch it? I mean, it, so it's called The Mortuary Collection. And sorry, sorry, go on. No, I was just going to say, it's quite funny as well. I actually laughed out loud at mm. some points in that. 
yeah it's a shutter original so i don't think you're ever going to see it on anything else and yeah as i say it's a horror anthology set in a spooky town called raven's end clancy brown plays this creepy mortician guy who lives in a house on a hill and this inquisitive young woman comes to answer his advert for help basically and he shows her around the facility <laughs> i love the bit where he's, he's shown around the facility and he goes oh yeah it's got all the mod cons he says and they visit this like 1930s embalming room where she says where are we what is this and he says I think it's a library, and it's, like it's clearly a library. Sorry, yeah, um, So yeah, and that, that's the setup, really. This is kind of the framing device, and he's telling her stories about various different bodies that have passed through this place, um, and that, and the stories behind them are the different little short movies that make up the anthology. So we get, and they all cover different time periods. So you got like one from the thirties, you get one from the sixties, as modern day one, and yeah and that's it and then of course like most anthologies it comes back to the present day and what's going on in this house so yeah clancy brown is perfect in this film like, yeah he's like he's like a cross between lurch from the adams family and vincent price in a roger corman film so it's good got, it's got great i really like the um makeup effects as well because i was i panicked and i thought oh please don't tell me that clancy brown is actually that old because i haven't he's done so much voice work that i thought oh don't be old clancy but then i saw a picture of him with this thick iron gray mane and i thought no, he's fine that's just really good makeup yeah because he's meant to be really old in this isn't he yeah like in the um, 40s or something he um i think yeah the the stories are they're pretty consistently good um I mean, they, they and they cover quite a range of horror type things. Well, I suppose it's mostly body horror, really. There's a, there's a little monster movie set in the 30s, which is very simple. There's a proper body horror one where this guy gets pregnant <laughs> and it's got to come out somewhere. But I think well, my favourite... That made me pinch the bridge of my nose with that one. <laughs> yeah, he was like, oh, okay. Okay. Uh, yeah, there's... And I think my favourite was the one... There's one about euthanasia not youth in asia before the 80s keyboard band (laughs) (laughs) um which was really that was properly like disturbing and sad and full-on and actually quite creepy so i enjoyed that yeah yeah they were all yeah they were all good for different reasons the first one was really snappy and then and just like a really basic premise and he said the the second was kind of full-on and then the third one was like actually quite uh, oddly endearing and, yeah. and moving so yeah it did cover a range of things i think probably the last act is probably the last kind of story is kind of the weakest in a way but then i suppose inevitably it has to get all bit kind of head smashy and bone crunchy by the end um it just didn't quite have the kind of mischievous character of the other stories no and i think as well that you, you could very much see what was going on in it yes. um and then sort of to, to wrap it fully around. And I thought, yeah, I, I suppose, like you say, you kind of had to do that to have some sort of um, magic at the end. Yeah, I, I liked it looked great. That production design's amazing. Um, how it covers the different periods and that. And it's got a really it's got a really, really nicely balanced tone between the kind of silliness, um, but also genuine kind of quite scary moments. So it's a it's a really good anthology, and I I would put it 
up there in terms of anthologies with Creepshow yeah. one and two and and Trick or Treat. So yeah, like it. Well, nothing will topple Night Train to Terror for me, obviously, because <laughs> that film is astonishing on multiple levels. But no, I I would agree with you. It's it's a good one. It's definitely a good Halloweeny one as well. And I'm with you because obviously. You say films when they made like you know it's it's a Shudder original. It'll be stuck on Shudder. I was thinking because I remember when Shudder first kicked off, it had a lot of problems with like um, buffering and all these issues. Yeah, <clears throat> I how much money has been put into this? But like you said, I found it really cool. Obviously, like custom built sets and stuff. So I was completely on board for it. Yeah, and uh, I, I didn't really notice. I mean, there are a couple of CG moments, which is fine, but there were there's a key moment where there are certain creatures crawling out the floor and I thought, well, this could have been CG, but they decided to go with like really creepy puppets and it does make a difference. Definitely makes a difference to the kind of visceral feeling of the scene. So yeah, it felt, yeah, it felt like a nice mix of old and new. We will talk about CG later in this podcast. (laughs) Right. Where do we go now? Well, what were the other ones you had? I'm just thinking if there are any I've seen that you've listed. I'm sure there was a third one. Um, I The other ones I've got, I've got four remaining. So I've got The Guest, Demons, May and Borat. Oh, okay, yeah. There are, well, I've got three others. So do you want to go first and then we'll... Um, I'll crack on with The Guest because I'm sure you've seen that, haven't you? I have indeed, yes. Yes, you have. So it was... It was, oh, it was I always forget his name. Dan Stevens. Thank you very much. Uh, Dan Stevens, because I watched it when um, Sal was around, uh, my wife's sister, and and she was she was saying it's always the pretty ones, isn't it? So yes, it is. Um, so yeah, it's this was this, the guest was directed by Adam Wingard in 2014. I wasn't a big fan of Your Next, which he'd done before this, but I do love the guest. I think Adam Wingard went on to do Blair Witch and Death Note, neither of which really appealed to me. No, I haven't. Um, play which what like a, a film or a TV show? Uh, film. It was like a kind of reboot thing, which didn't look oh, very interesting from the trailers. No, weirdly, Your Next as well was one that a lot of people said was really cool. And mm. I remember, I'm pretty sure I turned it off. Really? I don't, know, I don't know if I was too... Yeah, I don't think... I think I might have just been knackered, but not not involved enough to finish it. The next day. I, I feel like I need to watch it again because it was something I just watched without knowing anything about it. Didn't really enjoy it. Um, and then I saw rave reviews and I'm thinking, was I just wrong? I don't know. Anyway, the guest. Um, so the story is that this family is reeling from the death of their son um, in in the war. Uh, and moments later this guy called david turns up at the, on their doorstep played by dan stevens and he claims to have been a friend of their son uh, uh, like a fellow soldier and he is handsome and charming and conspicuously attentive to their needs and gradually it becomes apparent that he is more dangerous than he appears and may indeed not be the person he claims to be and this there's a secret government agent agency led by none other than Lance Reddick, good, who mobilise uh, immediately and are desperate to take him down. Um, so they they come on the scene. Um, 
Lance Reddick, by the way, I think he has led secretive government agencies about four or five times now. Because yes. in Quantum Break and even in the video game, it's like, oh, hang on, who's that shadowy figure? Oh, it's Lance Reddick and his amazing voice. And that man action. has gravitas. <laughs> he does. <laughs> in, in, uh, he's in Bosch as well, and he's so good in that. So, uh, yeah. Anyway, so the casting is amazing because it's not just it's not just uh, it's not just Reddick. But also, of course, Leland Orsa is the father, and he's a nervous wreck. And um, obviously, he's Leland Orsa. Love a bit of Leland. And uh, Maika Monroe is the sister. And, of course, she was brilliant in It Follows. So that's great. But then, of course, there's Dan Stevens, who, at this point, he was just known as this slightly podgy fop in Downton Abbey. And then suddenly he shows up in this and he's this kind of lithe, menacing, totally ripped American special ops guy from the Deep South. And it's just a really great performance. The way it's the way he, it's, his facial expressions just really subtly shift when the camera's on him is really, really clear. He gets more than one like Jack Torrance staring at the camera moment. Um, it does have a lot of Halloween iconography, this film especially in the final sequence. But in all honesty, it's more of a kind of dark action thriller, I'd say, than a horror. Uh, but it's it's got really nasty playfulness about it. And I and they, it's got a really throbbing synth soundtrack, so that's awesome. Um, I, I'm not sure I like the... I didn't love the convoluted backstory, the kind of government agency stuff. I, it seems a bit overcomplicated, for what could have been a bit more simple, a bit more elegant. I don't know. Yeah, it, it kind of it feels a bit too expansive. Yeah, it feels it, like it could have been like a little town story. Mm, yeah, I, uh, yeah. I suppose it's just. I suppose it gives it an excuse for some pretty cool gunfights later on. Um, but anyway, I mean, all that stuff is just an excuse for uh, this David character to be an unstoppable killing machine, and he is gently genuinely threatening like you just know that he can just kill utterly without mercy and also just be really really clever about it and totally like uh emotionless um yeah so it is a horror film that can be enjoyed by non-horror fans i'd say um oh yeah but it's also made by someone who with a clear kind of uh love for all the kind of motifs of horror and of exploitation cinema and it's it's brutal and it's funny in the same kind of way that something, something like Knock Knock or The Gift, you know, not necessarily similar in plot, but similar in tone where it's like very, you know, that something's very wrong <laughs> like, and you're waiting for it to kick off into a, a whole different um, level of ultraviolence. <clears throat> so, yeah, that's The Guest and it's on Prime. Yeah, that was a that is a one I've seen once. I think when it came out, and um, I I had no uh, preconceptions of who Dan Stevens was, so I just completely watched it, uh, seeing him for the first time, and I absolutely loved it. And it is a film I, I haven't rewatched it just because I've been busy, but I, I know it's a film that will come around for me again because it's 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 a rewatchable film. Oh yeah. Um, I will move on quickly then to um, Tom Savini, the story of Tom Savini, Smoke and Mirrors, which is on Shudder. Um, Faye is obviously a, a makeup artist and she loves horror. So this was one that she said, I really want to watch that. And it was actually the reason for me getting Shudder initially. Um, right. And 
I first saw Tom Savini acting in From Dust Till Dawn, where he's got the penis gun, which is absolutely fine. And I always just thought he was a really cool actor that I just didn't see much. I had no idea of his backstory. So for those who aren't aren't aware of who Tom Savini is, he is a renowned uh, makeup artist in the horror world who's worked on stuff like Friday the 13th, um, uh, one of the creep shows, one of the creep shows, maybe? But yeah, he's done I so think, much stuff. Did he do The Burning as well? I think. Yes, yeah, that comes in there. Yeah, this he's done so much stuff through the years, and recently he's got more into acting. He's got his own makeup school, but this is a documentary just ab- about his life, and it's very much a sort of um, interview heavy. You know, it'll it's interview heavy sort of talking heads part with people like Sid Haig and um, Tony Todd's in there. Doug Bradley introduces it, which is really cool, and it's just people. Danny Trejo's in there quite often, which is fine. And it's people just talking with just complete reverence about Tom Savini and uh, and his personal life. And it's really cool, actually, because it, his personal life is really interesting. He tells a really, really kind of oddly poignant story about why he doesn't eat duck. Um, right. Uh, which I won't spoil here, but it's it was just weirdly sort of affecting. And, uh, yeah, he talks about how his hardships of his family growing up and then into his career and where he is now. And it's, it's interesting because he, he's so symbiotically linked with uh, horror and blood and gore, but he's kind of like Alice Cooper mentions in this documentary. He's at heart, a real quiet, passive um, teetotal family man uh, who just mm. happens to just really love horror. And he, he's such a sort of gentle man that really comes through in the documentary that it's just a real pleasure to, learn more about him and hear people just basically just rain adulation upon him there were a couple of little things um it is um it's very much in that vein it's obviously made with love for Mm. him and there's a few moments where the sound is changes volumes and stuff where it cuts to older interviews and it gets a bit sort of hissy and a bit quiet and uh, I don't know who made the documentary, but I, I can imagine that they wouldn't have made too many before this. There's a couple okay. of kind of h- hardish cuts and stuff like that. But to be honest, it's it's just he's such a nice bloke that it just it just keeps you going. Mm. Um, so yeah, I really really like that. And and if you've got any interest in in makeup or horror effects, of course you get some really cool behind the scenes um, footage and snapshots as well, going from obviously 1980 up to the present day. So really really cool the documentary on Tom Savini. I will definitely, definitely be watching this. Yeah. Yeah. That um, man, by the way, that man is 73, and I reckon he has been to a gymnasium. <laughs> I'm pretty sure he's walked into a gym at some point. Yeah. He, did he do Did he do Return of the Living Dead? No, he didn't do that. He did the remake of Night of the Living Dead in 1990. That was, yeah, that's what I must be thinking of. Um, yeah. So I'm just looking through his, uh, just looking through his filmography now. Because so of course he did, he worked with yeah Romero early on with like Dawn of the Dead, so that's cool. Friday the Thirteenth, good. Texas Chainsaw Massacre too. Woo! I think he's in that as well. I think he's an actor in that as well. Um, oh, that's cool. I, I, it kind of makes me a bit sad, in a way that with these old school you know like rob button tom savini uh, rick baker these people who started off you know obviously they're pioneers in practical effects and to see the kind of the work dry up 
as into the 20, 21st century because of course everything so much got taken over by cgi and i'm i'm not completely anti cgi by any means but it is a bit sad when it's why it's sad when you see a film where it uses cgi and you're just thinking well that practical there's no i understand if you want to do large scale you know stuff where it's you know buildings and all that kind of stuff fair enough but when it's like a kind of human-sized monster or whatever and it's like which is why going back to the mortuary collection why it was nice when there is a moment where there are human-sized monsters crawling out of the floor it was just nice to see that they used puppet effects for that uh and yeah so but i think i think as well when you whenever you do see sorry whenever you do see uh practical effects in a film it's always good you know like like kind of a, a slightly shabby slimy real a tangible monster is kind of always going to be better than than slightly cheap CG basically has to be at its top of the game to be believable whereas yes. you can get away with like a kind of well lit practical effect yes and it will never there's something about a practical effect where it will you see it for the first time and it will always look that good even if that even if it's not that good it'll always look as good as you see it on the screen <laughs> Whereas I think with CGI, what tends to happen is that you'll you'll watch a movie with CGI. First time you watch it, you think, oh, that's pretty good. That's pretty well done. You'll watch it again in five or ten years' time, and you'll be like, ah, actually, things have moved on, and I'm really seeing how fake that looks. And yeah. then you move on another five or ten years, and it looks even worse and it, until it looks totally fake right. and of course it's and not in the room with the actors as well until you eventually get around to watching 1997 spawn with michael j white and thinking <laughs> yeah that doesn't that doesn't look too good now yeah the <laughs> the best cgi monster i've ever seen was in the final season of uh well the last season that's been released of stranger things and i'm not too enamored enamored with stranger things but the monster at the end of that season was so amazing that it i genuinely could not you could if someone told me that is a massive puppet like a room sized puppet i would believe them because it was that that convincing oh now, okay which was so it's worth watching the final episode just for that really and which is great but again if <laughs> will i look at that in 10 years time and think uh, what, I, what I kind of visualized at that time it really doesn't look as good now who knows anyway whereas you can check on the thing from 1982 and think yeah that's still amazing yeah it'll always look it'll always look that good and it is very good so yeah was it 1982 the thing it was oh I was gonna say it seemed a bit early but uh, that's fine yeah um so yes yeah, Thomas Tom and mirrors the story of Tom Savini was uh, sorry, Smoke and Mirrors, the story of Tom Savini on Shudder, and definitely worth a goosey. I will be gooseying that one. Um, Demons. This is on Shudder. This is this is... the one? I've, we've had this conversation a few times. Is this the one with a woman on the front in like a prom dress holding her hand up, like with sharp nails? Mm, I'm not sure. What is that? I for? don't think it is. I don't know whether... I can't think of what the cover looks like. Um, you might have to is it in a cinema yes right i've seen okay i've seen it then at least yeah I know right I mean. okay 
It probably actually could have a woman on the front with sharp nails. That would make sense in the film. Anyway, this is 1985. And it was directed by Lamberto Bava, who I knew his name, but I'm not sure where from. He worked with Dario Argento on a couple of movies, and he also worked on Cannibal Holocaust. And so, yeah, the story is a bunch of people watch a horror movie, a cheesy horror movie in the cinema. And there is basically some kind of a sort of zombie outbreak. Uh, it starts with someone being cut and infected by this magical mask. And then they mutate into a bloodthirsty demon. And now anyone they bite or claw is also transformed. Um, so it, and so, but all these people are kind of trapped in the cinema, basically trying to not get eaten by each other. Um, so it's kind of a bit dust till dawny. So dust till dawn meets night of the living dead. Uh, but it's got this kind of really rich neon aesthetic, which you'd see in something like vamp constant unnatural lighting. It's amazing. Sounds like something to be up your street. <laughs> it's not as, I mean, dust till dawn meets night of the living dead meets vamp. Sounds like the best film ever made, but it's not the best film ever made. Um, it's a really overly loud synth score. Yes, really Good. abrasive. Oh, oh well, I'll okay, mention yeah. that. I'll mention the music in a bit, actually. Yeah. So anyway, yeah, it, it's absurdly violent, and I think this is probably where the <clears throat> cannibal Holocaust experience really pays off because the demons are so aggressive, and they'll they'll just rip out people's eyes, just tear out their throats, scalp people, anything, anything goes. And the makeup effects, uh, they're good enough to be kind of gross but bad enough not to be taken seriously. So if you see what I mean, it, bad enough that you wouldn't, it's not just vicious and unpleasant. unpleasant yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, there's this kind of side plot thing about this bunch of like punk crack people in a car, literally snorting Coke from a Coke can <laughs> through a straw and they're outside the cinema and they end up going into it but it is quite poorly edited it's not really clear what relevance they play for a long time and it does take you out of the kind of claustrophobia of those interior cinema scenes i think it would have worked better if it had just been locked in if you see what i mean without cutting away to these pseudo comical punks outside um there <laughs> i think the the um, depiction of women isn't exactly progressive, should we say? There's literally a scene where the group in the cinema, they, they escape the auditorium, but then they hit this dead end. And it's not just one of the women, but every single one of the women in the group has a complete hysterical panic attack instantly. <laughs> it's ridiculous. Um, it's some pretty cool sound design. And it's i like it when there's this the divide between like the music and the atmospheric sound is sometimes kind of uh mixed up which is kind of cool so you get moments where you get this this weird otherworldly humming sound which is really unnerving and at other times you get this distorted wind howling sound it's almost like these sounds are being electronically treated and it kind of sounds like monsters breathing in the dark or something so it's quite atmospheric that uh, the the actual screenwriting is terrible and <laughs> there is the post dubbing is awful and the performances are completely useless but special effects 
sound design, atmosphere, all really good. And once it kicks off, it just never lets up. And then I'll mention the music as well. It's this mix of synth pop and 80s rock, including the likes of Billy Idol and Motley Crue, of course. So, yeah. Jesus Christ. So I'll okay. definitely be checking out the sequel, which is awesome. <laughs> Shut up. So, yeah, that's Demons. And, uh, this is, isn't there a third one as well? I'm not sure. I've not seen it around. Maybe there was, but... Mm. Oh, I, don't I don't know. I thought there was a Demons 3, but... Um, okay, then. Yeah, yeah, it's I, worth, I, I actually... worth a shot if you like those films I mentioned, like anything Night of the Living Dead or Vamp, yeah. So... yeah. The thing is, any kind... Of, and I'm guessing it's like 85, 90 minutes as well. Oh, yeah. Uh, no, so any of those 80s loud neon, you know, yep. off it kicks and it never stops films you're always in the mood for it at some point aren't you you're yes. always like i just want to watch trashy horror it um, is it's just yeah pure trash and that's fine and it knows it is well i'll move on from total trash to uh, a film that has a little bit more uh, substance a film called a 2018 korean film called monstrum i don't know if you've you've probably seen this i guess on shadow oh um, but, no is it is it on Shudder? Uh, yeah, yeah, it is. On good, yeah, it, it's uh, so Monstrum. It looks at 2018 uh, South Korean film, and I forget how many good thriller slash horrors come out of South Korea. Um, when you look, Memories of Murder, The Yellow Sea, and um, oh, another one I always are oh, The Chaser. All the these amazing The Host. There's another one as well that I forget the name of. Um, but yeah, so I thought, oh my god, I haven't watched like a Korean, like a dark Korean film for a while. So I checked it on, and the story is that it's set in, I think it's the 16th century, and it's very much a sort of class-based horror about um, the poor in this film. They are brassic. They haven't even got master systems. They are poor, <laughs> like they're literally wearing dirty rags, and they've just got like bark as shoes and they up um <laughs> so <laughs> like, you better make that toffee crisp last love because all we've got left all we've got left are fudgy wudgies after that <laughs> yeah we've got a pack of Werther's original but that's going to your gran <laughs> you've got a pack of Werther's originals but they're the cheap ones and when you look closer they actually say Werther's originals yeah um, we got them from aldi we couldn't do that. <laughs> um, so it's it's um there's a at the start of the film we see a plague has swept the country and the sort of aristocracy and all of the um generals and prime ministers and all of the sort of higher um echelons of society this cabinet of people literally get all the people all of the poor people and just kill them and kick them into a pit <laughs> literally just right off oh. with you you dirty buggers um get in there with and we know you'll burn because your shoes are made of box you'll got the right treat um so they, they go in there and one of the soldiers saves a girl and sort of completely turns his back on on that society and goes to live in the mountains so we pick up with them about say 14 years later the girl's a teenager and the general the retired general who's in his sort of 40s by this time gets called back in because um the king has been told of this thing called monstrum, but effectively a monster uh, that has the it is attacking and killing, slaughtering um, 
this area of land and he is thought to be the only person who can sort of kill it and uh, the first half of the film balances on whether this monstrum is is just a the prime minister trying to overthrow the king by turning the people against him by making up all these lies and making up this monster and then just having these innocents killed um and then trying to find out or if the monster is a real thing and the people are telling the truth i thought this would go on to a tiresome level but actually and mm. this isn't really a spoiler it becomes clear quite early on that no th- there is a real monster um and the whole film is about sort of trying to kill it yeah. and I, I quite like this because and it reminded me of why i like a lot of korean films it's because even with a monster film there's m- multiple layers like with this yeah. there's a lot of sort of classes and there's always something a bit deeper going on it's not just like cool stuff um the characters do i forgot um i had to point this out because i was watching it with Faye, and i don't think she's seen a korean like a horror thriller before and she was sort of a bit taken aback by how it can go from like, extreme gore to just really silly slapstick comedy often in the same scene and i'm yeah. kind of used to it so you've at the start you've got like when they're living in the mountains and they're fishing and then you've got this his the the sort of main lead general character and his brother who's like slightly chubby and a bit of a buffoon and constantly hungry and complaining about having dicky guts and stuff but then when it gets to the fighting he's like a really capable soldier and doing all these acrobatics and stuff with hatchets and good good of course you just get on board with it because that's kind of how it rolls um and there are some moments that like really made me laugh out loud in it and the monster this is what i was going to mention earlier on whilst the monster is cg and it does that thing where it's almost like lighting doesn't affect it it's always a little bit brighter than everything else in scene mm-hmm. um it is cool it's a cool design and it is really threatening because every time if it so much as touches you it basically gives you this kind of instant bubonic plague and you start coming out in boils and welts so it when they're kind of up against it you think right do not do not let him get one of those claws up (laughs) your dick because that is going to hurt so it's it's quite a threatening monster and it's quite uh gloopy and gory and it gets completely bonkers towards the end and again there's this whole uh class classism yeah story behind it all it's not just a monster movie so i really really liked it like i said any any film that can make you wince make you kind of cringe at what's happening on screen be involved in the story and make you laugh i'm completely on board with Uh, and is the is the period production design good yeah yeah it's like you said that you get the impression that there is the 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 sort of king and his uh his Mm. personal army kind of the, 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 the the um armor and all, all the weapon and all the uh, all the fight scenes are really good and then you when you see the pool people you're like yeah you guys you've got nothing of you uh poor buggers <laughs> so and what was i gonna say as well oh there was something else there's one sequence in it really weirdly one of the main fight sequences which appears to genuinely just be filmed on like an old phone it was really jarring i don't know if it was meant That's to weird. have a more it's, it's quite nicely shot and when it goes to this one fight scene, it goes to like someone literally holding an old VHS camcorder. And I don't, it's really noticeable what? in how it moves and stuff. And I was like, this just, is this like a practice run that they've thrown in or something? That's it was odd. very odd. Yeah, it was the only one noticeable thing. But I'm a sucker for monster movies, and this was a good one. So, um, and there's not too many good ones out there. So, Monstrum, um, definitely worth a goosey. Does the king live in a castle in ruins and sit outside the entire time until Dolph Lundgren turns up. 
and and was he in Dead Man's Curve? <laughs> no, no, it's not. It's not him. And 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 Dolph Lundgren isn't in this film. Going back wearing a scarf and like a thick jacket to overlie down on a bed. Uh, and putting no effort in, but getting systematically seduced by beautiful women with makeup and hair plucked, not kept within the period. That doesn't happen either. And never taking the scarf off for anything. Because it is freezing and you can see his breath when he speaks because they filmed in Romania in winter. Um, it, I will say in this film, though, there's some serious yeah. beards going on, some really serious beards going on. They are scraggly. Are they, um, are, are they real? I I hate no. seeing fake beards, like really obviously fake beards. I feel they're done well, fair enough. But well, you know just... when you can see the kind of glue around it? Oh, no. Really this was, do you know, like some people, a lot of people in this film, when they grow beards, they yeah. just get all thin and scraggly. And you just think, yeah. you, you know, I'm looking at these people and they're talking and they're wearing these sort of imperial robes and, and shouting these sort of portentous lines of dialogue. And all I'm thinking is, you need to trim that beard because when you eat soup, you are going to smell cheese on your moustache. <laughs> so you, you can't have toast. No, boom, butter in that moustache. You have to wash your face after every meal, sunshine, trim it back. So <laughs> that's what I was thinking. It was just a lot of scraggly beards, basically. Um, oh, by the to... way, there's a Sorry. moment, at... Sorry, there's a moment at the end yeah. where a character survives something. And I thought, oh, come on now. Come on. You know when like a film happens and there's a big emotional kind of payoff? And then it, I thought it backtracked on it. And then it literally, almost as an epilogue, someone says, how did you survive that? And it just actively shows it like it knew it would piss off the viewers. <laughs> yeah. So like, oh, at least there's a reason for it. At least it's not just glossed over. Right. Yeah. Um, so. Yeah, I was going to say Train to Busan. That's another really good south korean film i don't know if you mentioned that yet but yeah again really oh, good there was the other film i saw it was really good it's the one where um oh uh, i saw the devil oh yeah Ooh, that's full that, that is a film that um i remember that the scene in that film where the guy visits his cannibal friend and he's chatting to him as, as he's eating a meal and mm. he even this like <laughs> this heartless serial killer is watching him eat like raw flesh and he's and he's like wincing and and, and you're like <clears throat> yeah i, I can you push that to one side for a minute while we have a chat? Can you have like a have an apple or something? Um, you know, there's part. there's people who have a rough time in that film. <laughs> it is not a twelve. <laughs> um, right then, okay, let's move on to May on Shudder. This is a strange little psychological thriller. Um, May is. A woman, a young woman, she's very lonely and socially awkward. And her only friend, possibly her nemesis, is this doll locked, uh, locked in a glass case. And so, yeah, she, she's a young adult and she tries to reach out to people as friends and as lovers. But her ex only friend is a doll locked in a glass case. Yes. That's, that's like me saying... Oh, I've only got one friend, and it's a shoe that I put on a shelf. It's yeah, not really it's a, a really creepy doll as well. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, so, but yeah, she tries to reach out to people, but her excessive oddness and social awkwardness are just a massive barrier, basically. Um, she has this belief that you gather throughout the film. She believes that parts of people are good, but never the whole person. So, naturally, 
her being she's an amateur seamstress and a professional veterinary surgeon so this belief means that uh she decides to she's got to cut people up and sew together the perfect mate naturally um it sounds like it's a kind of classic 80s trash horror but it was actually made in 2002 and and for the most part it's actually got more of a kind of 90s slacker kind of vibe and it's quite a slow burn it's really well acted um so the 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 main actor um person who plays may is someone called angela bettis i'm not sure i'm not familiar with her but anyway she's her performance is so kind of agonizing and squirming uh, you you just kind of long for her to find her confidence trouble is she actually only finds her confidence when she decides to turn into a murderer so it does get very gory towards the end um but it is it's more of a character study i'd say than a slasher as such and the ending itself is oddly kind of drawn out and really quite anguished so it's more kind of sad than scary I think the main it's a good film but the main problem for me is a slight sense of monotony I would say which sounds worse than it is but what I mean is there's no real like standout set piece moment that could make it really memorable it's not boring but I think just one really good scare or really dramatic bold scene could have elevated it to a kind of classic status but it's a little bit too laid back in style to accommodate that i think so it's an interesting film um not really one to chuck on in the background it does have its darkly funny moments like <laughs> when she's she goes on a few dates with this guy and um she tells him this really disgusting story about this like um surgery that went wrong on this dog or something and then later on they're having dinner at a house and he's literally like bringing the soup to his lips and she says oh something happened at work today and he stops instantly and that's it it's in cuts because you just know it's going to be disgusting that was some quite funny moments um but deep down it is really quite a dead serious film about extreme emotional isolation so uh yeah it's quite an interesting little character study um but yeah not overly dramatic or anything uh, i don't think it would really satisfy slasher fans or anything like that young very young anna faris is in it as well oh really a very yeah. young anna faris how well, old is this i guess she's pretty young i suppose she wouldn't be that young but yeah what's that uh this was, I got a feeling that this was a film that Faye watched and from her uh, response to it, I I thought, nah, I'll, it seems like a mid-ranger. So I was always kind of yeah. a bit put off. I'd say it's upper mid-range. <laughs> I would say, yeah. Like, I I would probably watch it again, but I'd give it five, ten years. So then. The, last, the, the last film for me is following on from my how much i enjoyed monstrum i thought well i need more korean action really? and uh i thought well it's on prime for the first time and it was parasite mm. and i like the idea of you need more action you watch parasite <laughs> i needed to happen it is not wall-to-wall action but it's a very good movie it was i just wanted that i wanted that korean tone Mm. Uh, and because uh, I kind of forgot it's the same with like Japanese or I forget how much I enjoy them and I get sidetracked um, so I watched Parasite obviously this is an Oscar winner 
So I, I expected expected good things. And it was very much a film that I'm happy to say that I'm a stupid man when it comes to films. And when I watch a film, I know I'm probably not picking it up on every level, especially on a technical level. So I watched watched it and I know that this is a film that probably needs to be watched a few times to really pick up on everything. So I just really got stuck into it. And I think because I was perfectly in the mood I, it was like the, the the right time for me. So yes, I, I'm assuming that a lot of people know this because it's probably one of the more high, uh, uh, more popular profile. films we yeah. talked about. Yeah, high profile films. Um, this is about a a really poor family in South Korea um, who ingratiate themselves into the lives of an extremely wealthy family and things just I'm just, just laughing thinking about it because it's such a funny premise. Yeah, there was this thing. It was such. A, it is funny, and like so many things that happen are funny, and so many things happen are just really depressing, as well. Um, the amount of times that the father just like people say stuff about him, and he just like kind of his eyes just like fall to the floor, and you think, oh dear. Um, so yeah, yeah no, it, it. I I was a big fan of this, and it was just one of those films that just felt really high quality. Every everything that happened, it's quite a long film. I think it's two and a half hours as well, mm. but it, but it really doesn't feel it. No. Considering, like you say, there's there's a, a distinct lack of obviously like action and, and horror. It's more about drama and tension. Yeah. And and the, there are so many tense scenes in that film, and so many situations. You think, how is this going to resolve itself? And so many yeah. sort of. And, and I know we we say there's no action in it, but a lot of it, a lot of it is kind of set piece based, isn't it? Like there mm. are big high tension scenes in it. It's a very memorable scenes in it. Yeah. Sorry, go on. Yeah, absolutely. No, no, just, just to say that. And um, it, it's, again, just um, it followed on nicely from Monstrum. It made a pretty good double bill because you've got that Monstrum was very much about a sort of class divide. Yeah. And then this just, just pushes that forward a few centuries. And it's it's the same thing on a far smaller scale without a massive CG monster in it. But, um, yeah, it's, it's one of those films that... Um, Again, it does that thing where it rolls from a single scene can be really, really tense, and then and then within that scene you're just laughing, but it never turns into full slapstick. But I think as well, is it Boon Yong Ho did yeah. a Bong Yong Ho? Sorry, did um, Memories of Murder, right? And that was if I didn't realize that he did that, and that was um, a really really saucy film. And I realized that he made Okia as well, didn't he? That you yes. watched. Yeah, and was that really good as well? It was good, yeah. Uh, it was, yeah, it's got that, it had, I think it was a bit more kind of mainstream in a way. But it's, you know, in another set of hands, it would be quite schmaltzy and a bit preachy, I think, something like Okia. But in his hands, it was very odd and off-kilter, Um uh, yeah, and p- just bizarre. And yeah, I really enjoyed that. I think that was a Netflix film, wasn't it? Really? That oh, was that from- yeah. Or was that it might have been. Might be Prime. Was it, was it in English as well? Uh, I don't think so. No. Okay. Yeah, it was. Um, it had some English-speaking elements in it. Um, but it wasn't exclusively that. No. Because I remember, um, I mean, I'm terrible with names anyway, but with uh, watching Snowpiercer and not realising it was him. And when I saw Snowpiercer on, like, Netflix a few years ago, I remember just thinking it was some low-budget film that, um, what's his name, Chris Evans had just kind of knocked out 
you know, yeah. just because you fancy the script. I didn't realize there was such talent behind it. And I remember watching the yeah. film thinking, this is really good. You know, you're watching something expecting it to be something like Lockdown with Guy Pierce, yeah. and, and you think, actually, this is really, really good. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, yeah, OK was definitely a Netflix movie. Yeah. So I'm thinking about it. Snowpiercer, as well as this, has got that. Well, the class system thing going on. They're keen on it in Korea now that I think about it. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Pointing yeah. out the class divide. Um, yeah, so... yeah, I don't know how they... I think it's... Because you think about Snowpiercer and Parasite and think You know, and even the host. The kind of allegor allegorical... It's pretty clear allegories going on in there. But they don't feel too preachy. Uh, no. And I think that's probably because they're odd enough and off kilter enough, and possibly because there's this kind of like a cultural divide that it doesn't come across that way. Oh, maybe it's just because he's a good writer as well, because I mean, he writes all his movies. Yeah, yeah. I, I, you're never watching it thinking that this is a political statement. Yes. It's it's just a, they're just good films. Mm. Mm. So I know it's a, obviously a bit of an obvious one, but um, it, to be honest, it was nice to watch a an Oscar winning nominated film that wasn't like a three hour drama, period drama. It was nice to just watch something that thought, well, this is just actually a really good film. Yeah. Um, I have a and, feeling that and, and it feels approachable was, as well. Yeah. Well, yeah, it's very, it's very watchable because it's not like it's like you say, I mean, it, it's amusing, even like the level of squalor that the family live in is so ridiculous and hilarious it's so over the top that you can't it it's not like misery porn it's and the fact that the it's the the kind of poor family who are the the mean ones the mean-spirited ones makes it funnier yeah. as well i guess yeah. that in that way it dodges that bullet of just being preachy because there were two aspects of it that um that sort of tickled me one was the the guy at the start who gives gives the son the job to take over as a tutor literally never comes back into the plot i thought he would come back and there would be something but not gone done out of it boom just just there to set it up and the second thing is that when they when that family uh like i said ingratiate themselves with with the wealthy family they they still just like taking the piss and like i said they can't move on from their poor mindset like when they get the house themselves they're just drinking and smashing things up. And you're like, just there's like no respect anyway. So uh, <laughs> it's just like take what you can and give nothing back. So and trample over anyone in your way. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's a good movie. Everyone should watch it. I I have a feeling it's the first foreign language film to win Best Picture. Whatever. I think so because they've obviously got a separate category for best foreign language film but best picture itself is has always been uh well either well it's always been an english language film basically but i'm pretty sure it's the first one to win that and deservedly really because it's a very good film yeah it's really good i think um, there's a black and white cut out there somewhere as well i did was reading when i was reading up about this because i watched it uh, last night and Bong Joon-ho was saying that apparently that when you watch it in black and white, it, it highlights the squalor more. Right. Um, okay. So I'm thinking if I do watch it again, and I probably will, I will watch try and watch the black and white version just for a bit of you know variety. To see yeah, I think so. I don't think it always works, black and white versions. <clears throat> like, I quite like The Mist 
was quite good. The black and white version of that. With Thomas um, J. Yes, that was quite good. And, and I think, uh, yeah, Mad Frank Darabont. Mad Max did. I don't think it works so well with Mad Max because of the, I, I don't know, with Mad Max, it's like, it's such a vibrant film, you know, and the sun plays such a, uh, such a vital role. And there's so many colours and there's a lot of fire and stuff. I don't know. It didn't quite work for me. But The Mist was good because it made it feel like an old-fashioned kind of Night of the Living Dead type scenario. Uh, yeah. Well, until the CG started, I suppose. But, you know, it worked is quite well. The, in The Mist, is there any scene where Thomas Jane is like peering through the thick fog and saying, Clegg? Clegg? <laughs> Does that happen? Peter Salas, uh, is that you? <laughs> no, no, I, that, I don't think that happens. And no one like falls. It must have been a like deleted a... scene written by Frank Darabont. <laughs> yeah, so we're all locked up in the supermarket, and then three old men wearing farmer's clothes are going to come rolling down a hill in a wheelbarrow uh, with, a, with, a, with like an old woman's knickers in their hand as Benny Hill music plays. And right. Stephen King was like, I'm not sure that I think that's a bit too much of a deviation from the novella. Thank you. Um, right. So finally, I think this is the last one I've got. Yeah. Borat. Or. Borat subsequent movie film or to give it its full title. Borat subsequent movie film delivery of prodigious bribe to American regime for make benefit once glorious nation of Kazakhstan. Uh which is quite an amusing title. It's the sequel, obviously, to Sacha Baron Cohen's 2006, that's right, 2006 mockumentary. Um, uh, so think about Sacha Baron Cohen. He is a, he's clearly a clever and funny guy, even if he does target low-hanging fruit quite a lot. But anyway, th so this time around, um, Borat, uh, this kind of dumb... Uh, Kazakh uh, journalist he is tasked with giving he's tasked with giving his 15 year old daughter as a gift to Vice President Mike Pence to avoid execution so he goes to the US and he trolls various Republicans um, before cornering Rudy Giuliani who is Trump's he was previously he was New York mayor and I think he was Trump's former lawyer um yeah so that's kind of the final scene so okay the issues here are that everyone recognizes borat they know who sasha baron cohen is and they know who borat is so he needs to put on a lot of quite amusing disguises and adopting ridiculous like really ultra american names um but it is obvious it's overwhelmingly clear that even those who don't recognize him are in on the joke and which kind of bring brings us to the real problem with this film. So more than anything, I think this time around, I think more than anything, he tends to be revealing the essential decency and politeness of the average American, which isn't nearly as fun as revealing their prejudices, which only very occasionally emerge in this one. So it does feel like he's stretching a lot of the time. For example, there's this bit where he goes where him and the daughter character go to this sort of coming of age, old fashioned coming of age dance in Georgia, um, where rich people go and they kind of parade young women uh, in front of people. And 
And he asked this old guy, this old rich guy, how much his Bora asked him how much his daughter is worth. And the guy says uh, like $500, but he's clearly joking. And this old guy, and he is instantly reprimanded by his own daughter for being horrible. <laughs> like, and, and so in the end, in this scene, in this dance, Bora and his daughter end up doing this really obscene menstruation dance, which is staggeringly grotesque. But I'm not really sure what it kind of says about anything, because I don't think anyone, whether they're extremely rich or extremely poor, would appreciate the sight of a woman's bloodied underwear in any public setting. So it's not really pointing anything out about those people. I just kind of feel, and there's a lot of scenes like this, and I, I just kind of think maybe it's a little bit too late for a film like Borat. Because in 2006, when you think about it, like the public discourse wasn't, there wasn't social media and all of the misinformation around that. So whereas nowadays, I think we're more naturally sceptical about what we're seeing, whether it's kind of legitimate or not. And to me, I'd say about 95% of this film looked scripted, like actually just not even remotely real. Like the, there's this part where he he goes to stay with a couple of hicks for a few days during lockdown because it's filmed quite recently. And and they're obviously quite grotesque, um, like real MAGA morons, but they're clearly either actors or just two dudes who got paid and are playing along. And in, and even they draw the line when it comes to Borat's treatment of women. And and to be honest, I'd say that the best moments in the film are actually the most sincere moments, weirdly enough. There's this really nice moment where this child carer um, who's looking after Borat's daughter talks to her in a car and she says she doesn't need to change her because Borat's arranging like um, a boob job for her to, you know, be a better gift. So and but this child carer tells her that she doesn't need to change her body to get attention from men. And it's not meant to be funny or anything. It's just quite nice and probably not entirely unscripted in itself. And then there's finally there's the Rudy Giuliani bit, which has got I've seen a, a couple of minor headlines about this one. It's the big kind of climactic moment. So the idea is, the setup is, is the idea is to get, is to depict Rudy Giuliani as a pervert or possibly a paedophile. So the way they set it up is by uh, Borat's daughter um, putting on a lot of makeup, putting on a tight dress, and she is pretending to be a journalist interviewing Rudy Giuliani. That's, okay, that's fine. I mean, in the film, this woman is playing Borat's daughter and she's meant to be 15. She's actually 24, but she's playing 15 year old. Rudy Giuliani is obviously not aware that she's meant to be 15, but this is just, so what, what's really happening here is that this beautiful 20, 24 year old woman comes along, flatters Rudy Giuliani, an unmarried man, strokes his leg, and then invites him into a hotel room and sits him down on the bed. And he appears to be getting aroused by this, unsurprisingly. And then the scene is quickly broken up um, before it goes too far sort of thing. But again, I'm not sure this is really saying anything about a single heterosexual man that we don't already know. And it doesn't look predatory as such. It just, he just looks like a slightly pervy older man. Uh, mm. 
so it's vaguely amusing but hardly scandalous i wouldn't say and in this is meant this was this is clearly the the big climactic scene and it's meant to be the bit where it it really is um obviously he's not in on it at all sort of thing but it just falls a bit flat really and yeah i'd say that overall it the it's like the superficial the legitimacy of what is happening in this film is purely superficial i don't believe that pretty much any of it is is legit um and i think i really think it reveals more human decency than it does human depravity really it's people being very accommodating to this slightly weird foreigner maybe i've just changed my tune since 2006 i don't know but i swear that when i watched the original film it was funny because no one really knew who he was and it was he he seemed to reveal more about the worst parts of human beings whereas in this not so much i i only watched about I think about half an hour, 40 minutes of it. And I think I'm very specific with what I like from comedies. And like, to me, the, the funniest things to me are, uh, uh, friends being sporadic friends, you know what I mean? Just and that uh, sporadic comedy. So I I'm put off by a lot of, of scripted stuff just because it's like, it has to be very, very funny to, to entertain me. And when, when I think back to Borat, I did watch Borat, but years after it came out, yeah. My overarching, my overriding memory of it is, um, it, it was people saying, "Oh, did you see that bit? I can't believe he did that," and I hate that kind of comedy. I hate that just, you know, just shock value. Like, yes, this is tedious, and it never really appealed to me anyway. So when I watch this, and you're watching the bits at the start, uh, you know, where he's showing his daughter living effectively like a tethered goat in a shed, and you're like, mm. "Yeah, it's kind of fun. It's kind of funny that you know what he's doing," and then. But then, when it gets to America, and he's doing things like in a, in a like a small office where, which is obviously just like a, a run by an old man who runs like a faxing business, which is obviously on his yes. ass, and then he's just putting these like fa- silly faxes back and forth. And it goes on for a few minutes, and I'm just thinking, I don't know. It just seems like you're like this guy's just obviously running like a a completely outmoded business, and you're just like they're taking the piss. And it, yeah, I, I remember watch when a, there was a big push, and I think the guy got kicked off YouTube in the end. Where there was a guy, and he was going around and doing things like it was a British guy, and he would go into shops, and he'd have like a secret camera filming, and he was about in his twenties, and he'd have be on the phone, and there'd be like a woman, a pretty woman standing next to him, young woman like in a bookshop, and he'd say, yeah, yeah, she's there next to me in the red jacket, get the van ready, I'll grab her, check her in, and then we can go and rape her, and mm. and then she would like panic, throw the books at him, and just run off, and like that was the joke. And it's a bit too close to that for me. It's like real low-hanging yeah. fruit. You just think, yeah, yes. I don't know. That bit, the fax machine shop, it keeps cutting back to that as well. It must be three or four times they keep going oh, back really? to that. And I, the guy, I mean, all right, the guy's not questioning this stuff, but then they presumably paid him to do it, and he's clearly understands it's a joke. So it's not, I, it's not that funny. It just... That's what I mean about this superficial level of like legitimacy. I, I don't, it's like it's filmed as if these people don't know what's going on, but they evidently do know what's going on. So they're in on the joke. So who is the joke on? What's the point? It might as well just be completely scripted and with actors 
if you're going to do that, if people are going to be in on the joke anyway. And I know what you mean. That's what I mean about 2006 was a different time. There were, you didn't have YouTube. uh, Well, you did have YouTube, but it wasn't the same entity that it is today. And you certainly didn't have stuff like TikTok, where I've seen horrendous clips of people, like you say, going into perfectly decent shops or libraries or whatever and doing something obscene or offensive egged on by you know people uh, typing in the comments or whatever and then getting kicked out or yeah basically threatening someone in there and then getting kicked out or having the police called on them and it's like hilariously funny uh, supposedly and I know what you mean it's like now we have that and that is sadly commonplace you watch Sasha Baron Cohen doing it and it's like you need to aim higher than this now it's not it's there are other people doing this and it isn't funny when they do it and it isn't much funnier when you do it even if you are smarter than them so I don't know it feels like it's out of time a bit uh yeah and yes low-hanging fruit the whole way and you think I mean, there was a bit from... that I actually had to fast forward because it was okay. so uncomfortable. I think it was like some meeting of it was a meeting of Republican women or something like that. And they were just they're just women talking uh, having a meeting in this town hall or whatever. And she and this his daughter comes in and makes this speech and it's just really crass and offensive. And I just thought, I don't, I'm not going to find it funny seeing these people cringe and find her brash and offensive. So I had to just skip that bit. And that's not good. If I'm, if I know what the reaction is going to be and I, and I don't want to see it. Two, two, I just two quick, sorry. There's two, two points I'll really quickly make as well is one of them is like you see a lot of, a lot of the, the, basic human decency comes through like the dude in the fax machine shop and like i didn't get much further than that but from what you're saying it's like what happens is he goes into somewhere and he puts on this this and something he makes something ridiculous happen he makes these ridiculous demands and people basically kind of roll their eyes and just think oh whatever and then kind of go along with it and that's that's it so there's never any like that's as much as you ever get yeah they're basically just being polite yeah and it, well, exactly that, that example of that weird coming out, coming of age thing, um, where they do that dance and stuff, and it's it's horrendous to watch. But you know, and it cuts to the reactions of the audience, and they're just like basically just averting their eyes. Some of them are kind of giggling because they obviously know that it's a joke, but mostly it's just slight embarrassment, and that's it. And too many times, it. it he is revealing nothing about the human character other than just people don't really want their life disrupted by unpleasant things happening in front of them. And that isn't really, I don't think that's satire as such. No, I, I think as well that it's quite, it's quite sad that from what you just said, it just sounds like Sasha Baron Cohen's the the, Bore, the original Borat film from 2006 is effectively a precursor to these awful things. Bullying is effectively what it is on TikTok. So he's kind of the progenitor for that. Yeah, <laughs> uh, that edgy, okay. edgy like um, 
yeah, grim, dark humour, which just pushing pushing boundaries that don't need to be pushed. Um, yeah, so I, it didn't it, it didn't make me like him more, but in a way, it made me like the American public a bit more. <laughs> <laughs> everyone's just trying to be polite and nice and accommodating so yeah maybe that's the point not the yeah. best yeah so um, you've done your yeah. film of the week then so shall I do mine yeah. or yeah. <laughs> yeah, it is film of the week time isn't it Ooh. it is indeed well mm. so if I just quickly cast my eye back obviously Smoke and Mirrors the story of Tom Savini was just a really really fun documentary Parasite everyone knows is good um, Perfect Getaway was a fun thriller and it, like you said it was very bright and tropical and that was different summer of 84 was very 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 good but i think i'm going to go with monstrum just because it mm-hmm. was i knew parasite was going to be good but monstrum made me think yes i do need to i do need to spend more time with uh eastern thrillers and horrors because there's a certain yeah. tone to them that really tickles my tickles my throat when I'm trying to open a jar of pickles while I'm mm. on a seesaw. So I yeah. think I'm going to, I'm going to go for Monstrum for me. Okay. Um, yeah, I've watched a few good ones today. I mean, obviously the guest is, is yeah. great. Uh, uh, I don't know. It's, ooh, it's got either witch in the window or the mortuary collection. Um, I, I think, well, you've recommended witch in the window before anyway, and it's, and it was one of your films of the year. So I'm going to go with the Mortuary Collection just because uh, it's a perfect, it's a perfect Halloween film. It's got yeah. really rich, like autumnal Halloween atmosphere. It's got Clancy Brown being amazing. It's got consistently good mini stories. Um, yeah. And it all wraps up quite nicely. So, and good practical effects. So yeah, like that the a thing, lot. The Mortuary it, Collection. People are going to really complain because we'll get emails now that say, oh, uh, tune in your uh, recent podcast, um, not even Brit knows what number it is, and he does the editing, uh, sort of probably 20 or something. And usually you watch complete shit from the 70s and 80s that you both disagree, uh, both agree that it's crap and you don't like. And these are actually good films. When are you going to go back to watching Mark Lamar's VHS live show from the 90s, where he spends <laughs> half an hour pointing at an insect on stage because he's got no material? Hmm? so we'll get back to that oh the amount of emails we have saying that exact thing yeah oh yeah when are you going to go back to watching mark lamar's vhs live show from the 90s have you ever seen that (laughs) i no i don't think mark lamar did he present the word at some point or was that um that's terry christian wasn't it christian i'm sure he didn't he take over at some point am i just imagining that didn't he just do Nevermind the Buzzcocks or something? Yeah, I think it was just Nevermind the Buzzcocks. Maybe. He was not a fan. That live show, I don't even know why I watched it. I mean, I don't like live comedy anyway, but my God. He, had, he, had, he just went on. He had more material in the clothes on his body than in his mind when he was out there. Um, And oh, the, the other thing is, I'll, I'll throw this in really quickly before. Have you got five minutes, sorry, before you... Yeah, uh, of course. Shoot up, yeah. Um, Hubie Halloween, the Adam Sandler film. Right. You must have seen this advertised on Netflix, right? Um, yes. Oh, God. Yeah. yeah, I started watching yeah. this for some reason. Yeah, right? Um, the, mo- finish watching it. 
the moment I heard him talking like this, I thought, that's a piece of shit. Because everything he's done is a piece of shit, apart from Uncut Gems. All of his comedy is terrible. And it mm. came on, and Faye like, is like a magnet when anything ha- like directly Halloween-related comes on. She's like, I'm watching yeah. that. And she watched it. I think she watched it the last time we did a podcast. And I said, oh, every now and again, I could just hear him doing that stupid voice. What was it like? And she, and she said, I-, I can't remember anything about it. And I said, well, I was... I didn't hear you laugh once in the two hours that film was on. And then she said, I'll tell you what, I'll watch it again and let you know what it's like. And then she, the other day she said, I said, oh, did you get around to watching that Hubie? I mean, she said, no, I just, I don't want to watch it. I don't remember anything about it and I don't want to rewatch it. So I think <laughs> that in itself is a review. <laughs> it, well, yeah. I mean, I watched like 20 minutes of it or something. And I, it's soon as he opened his mouth, I was like, Oh my God. And, <sighs> It's just not funny on any level. It's just really crass and deeply, I, deeply unfunny. I wonder what the reviews are like, because when I watched, I forgot what it's called now, that film, like a Cowboys and Indians kind of film he did. Not a million not, ways to die in the West. Not a million ways the Ridiculous to die in the West. Six. Ridiculous yeah. Six. Um, like I said, I got seven minutes into that. This one, I barely made it through like the trailer that pops up on Netflix. So he's going in the wrong direction if he wants to meet, win me over as a fan anyway. <laughs> um, Mark Lamar was on the word. All right. Sorry. Yeah, oh, uh, just so the, emails, the live emails can stop flooding in now. <laughs> yeah, wasn't Mark, isn't Mark Lamar the one, didn't he, like... Had a rockabilly interview. Didn't he, he interview some rapper or something on there? It was really grotesque. Oh, who was it? Was it Shabba Ranks or something? Really? Yeah, and he was really, really grotesque, the guy, and Mark Lamar was just... Compl- they just basically had an argument on, on live TV. But that's what, that's what you, you had in the, 90, in the 90s, wasn't it? Like, edgy, late-night Channel 4 uh, programming, wasn't it? Yeah. yeah. But when you watch it now, it's just really irritating. It's just a lot of people, a lot of swooping cameras... A lot yeah. of behind the cameras laughing, and then just it just looks like a bunch of lads drinking lager. All of that sort of uh, stuff now. It's terrible. Um, yeah, it was proper lad culture stuff. But it, it was. Um, I just looked it up, and it's under notable moments. Shabba Ranks advocated the crucifixion of homosexuals, um, <laughs> which received universal condemnation, including from presenter Mark Lamar, who responded with, "That's absolute crap, and you know it." <laughs> so there you go. <laughs> It's a fair point. That yeah. I had full entertainment from you reminiscing about that nineties moment that I did from his entire career. So that was nice. That's made me reassess Mark Lamar slightly. Um, um apparently Oliver Reed was on there as well. Was he drunk he by any a, chance? <laughs> a very drunk Oliver Reed gave a fairly coherent <laughs> interview before performing Wild Thing by the Trogs. Oh. They just used to get him clattered, didn't they, on British TV? You they know when he went, it. yeah. They know when he went into his dressing room and sat down and put his shirt on, and he saw nine bottles of room temperature Thunderbird in a pint glass. He knew what he was getting into. <laughs> oh, dear. Ollie, oh my Ollie um, So. Um. Yeah. Films of the week then, uh, films of the podcast, sorry, were Monstrum and the Mortuary Collection, both available on Shudder. Yes. 
so worth coming. it. I mean, it's a, at the end of the day, it's a fiver a month, isn't it? So you could pay a fiver, watch most of you know the top stuff on there, and you're laughing. And if Night Train to Te- if Night Train to Terror is still on there, please, oh yeah, it please watch there. that for me. It's really on my watch list. Alright, <laughs> right there. I want to watch that, and I want to watch Monstrum. So yeah, yeah, mm, I'd watch Monstrum first. <laughs> <laughs> Because when I watch right. Night Train to Terror, I'm literally going to cancel my subscription. <laughs> yeah, you're literally going to set the fire to your TV. It's such yeah, a good not, subscription. Cancel my subscription, not just to Shudder as well, but everything. So I never have to look at anything with my eyes again. Even call your doctor up and cancel your monthly prescription as well. Go beyond <laughs> it. I demand um, to turn my electricity off. <laughs> yeah. Phone my workplace and say, I want to cancel my paycheck, please. I want to work for you for free. That's so yeah. Just, <laughs> yeah. yeah, just self-flagellation for watching Night Train of Terror. Um, good. Excellent. So, usual question then. Have you got anything on the cards for next time? Any films that are in the pipeline? Well, I want to watch, I want to watch Monstrum. I want to watch Demons 2. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'd like to watch the Tom Savini documentary, to be honest, because yeah. I'm a little, I'm always a little bit wary of watching documentaries about stuff I love, because there's so much footage. It just makes me want to watch those movies. It makes me want to turn the documentary off and watch those movies. If you see what I mean? Because uh. um, I did start watching another thing on Shudder, which was that very long documentary about '80s horror. I can't remember what it's called. But it's like four hours long and it just goes through 80s horror year by year and all the classic films from the period. And I saw, I got to 1980 and it just it showed loads of clips from each film, loads of people breaking down the plot, talking about it. Great. That's fine. But I just thought, well, I just want to watch these films. I don't want to watch people talking about them. But I think with Savini, the Savini thing, it could be a bit more. It's, it's not just focused, a remnant, it? it's, yeah. yeah, it's like, it'd be good to get to know him as a person. Yeah, it is very much focused on him as a person and like his sculptures and creations as opposed to the films themselves. I'd like to point out as well to our listeners that you said you got as far as 1980 in that documentary about horror in the 80s. And 1980 is the first year in that decade, ladies and gentlemen. I got to 1980 and about three films in. I think that was when, because one of them was The Changeling. And of course, start talking about The Changeling with George C. Scott and oh, I <laughs> and his turnups um, and and of course they start giving away bits of the plot and stuff and I was like okay well I don't I haven't seen this yet so I just turned it off and watched it <laughs> watched that film and haven't got back to it <laughs> imagine uh, you were like sitting there putting the documentary on with a big box of popcorn and yeah. it says 80s horror episode one January the 1st 1980 <laughs> that's it I'm watching Friday the 13th <laughs> it's basically it yeah i think yeah i think the very first one is actually friday the 13th so i watched that <laughs> and they went to the changeling i was like right off <laughs> good sounds good though yeah. right then so uh well i shall uh love you leave you to get back to your horror thon that is your life mm-hmm. yeah <laughs> i'll let you get back to your south korea thon true actually yeah i might have to re-watch those films yeah it's gonna happen i'm gonna i'm gonna see what else is on well you know i've got i've got netflix prime and shedding now so there's got to be some more korean gold on there yeah right then i'll let you get back to your four-hour documentary that you'll never make it through then 
Cool. Sounds good. All right. <laughs> Bye-bye. Farewell.